Welcome to International Marxist Radio, the official podcast of the International Marxist Tendency, Marxist.com. Join us every single week for Marxist news, theory, and analysis. Hi, I'm Joe Attard. I'm a writer for Marxist.com. I'm an activist with the International Marxist Tendency, and I'm the host of a brand new podcast series, International Marxist Radio IMR. And welcome to our very first episode. This will be a weekly series in which we will provide all the best Marxist news, theory, and analysis that you've come to expect from the IMT. But I can't think of any better way to kick off this show than with a brief look back to the year that was, but much more importantly, a view to the year to come, with our first ever guest on IMR. He's the author of over 10 books, including Bolshevism, The Road to Revolution, Reason and Revolts, and The Ideas of Karl Marx. He's a lifelong Marxist who's been active in the revolutionary movement for many decades, and he's the editor-in-chief of Marxist.com. Comrade Alan Woods, thank you so much for joining us. Glad to be here. And how was your Christmas and New Year? <laughs> Very good. Very quiet, I think, is the standard answer, which suits me down to the ground. It's the, the only quiet time of the year, as far as I'm concerned. Well, I suspect there'll be little quiet about 2023, <laughs> which, is, which is exactly why I wanted to bring you onto the show. The mouthpieces of the ruling class, the, the bourgeois media, the, the bourgeois politicians, it seems to me that they're desperate for some kind of return to normality. So will 2023 grant them their wish? Will they get any sort of return to normality? Yes, well, that's an interesting point you raise. Um, 2022, a turning point in world history. Now, that's quite a claim, isn't it? As a matter of fact, you know, we run the risk sometimes, I think, of uh, of uh, diminishing the strength of even a correct statement by repetition. You see, there are many turning points. Uh, 2008 undoubtedly was a turning point. Uh, 1973, the first recession since the Second World War, that was a turning point, and so on. Many turning points. And this is just, you could say, yeah, well, this is just one other turning point, isn't it? Uh, well, it is, and it isn't. You see, what what we have to do in each particular case is not just to repeat uh, in a mechanical sense, but we have to ex- make clear uh, why it is a turning point and what are the peculiarities which we must uh, analyse carefully if we want to understand what's occurring. And what is true about this particular period, the last 12 months, it is astonishing, really. I, I agree with you. And the other question, will 2023 see, uh, see a return to any sort of what, what you might call normality. Now, that's a big question again, which we'll have to uh, look at. Now, we have to always return to fundamentals, I think, always. And the fundamental question is, what are the, what are the fundamental obstacles which are preventing society from going forward uh, in the year of our Lord 2023? And I would say, as a Marxist, that we are looking at two fundamental phenomena, two fundamental problems, which is, on the one hand, of course, private ownership of the means of production, the market economy, an economy based exclusively on the uh, obtaining of profits of surplus value for a tiny privileged minority. And point number two, which is often overlooked, which it shouldn't be overlooked because it is fundamental, the limitations imposed upon the productive forces by this monstrosity of the nation-state, something which should have been consigned to to a museum of antiquities a long time ago, but here it is still with us. Not only is it with us, but it's asserting itself quite forcibly. You see, if you look at the period of of the last few decades, or the last 50 years probably, certainly the last 30 years, what you'll find, if you look at the statistics, is that the main driving force, the main motor force, locomotive of the world economy, was actually the growth of world trade. Marx anticipates this, by the way, in the in the third volume of Capital. Or indeed, if you look at the Communist Manifesto as early as that, 1848, 
you will find that the, 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 the Communist Manifesto, in a brilliant anticipation, because there was nothing like this available at that particular time, there was no such thing as a world economy, globalization, to use that expression, was predicted by the Communist Manifesto, if you read it. The, what, what the Manifesto predicted was the development from small-scale production, from small industries to monopoly, to monopoly capitalism, and of course, from the, the narrow nation state, which is too narrow to comprise the, develop, the powerful development of the means of production, to the, uh, the growth of the world economy. And it is precisely this element, precisely this decisive factor, which is the crushing weight of the world market, which is the decisive, that by the way is what makes socialism in one country utterly impossible. We are living in a period where the world is, is, is more interdependent. The economy, the entire world economy <clears throat> is more interdependent than at any time in previous uh, history. And this globalization, so-called, this development, this intensification, <clears throat> and this enormous expansion of the world market, particularly since the collapse of the Soviet Union, the entry of China, even India, which is already par partially integrated previously, has been the driving force behind the world economy. Yes, but this whole process of globalization, if you look at the facts, and the bourgeoisie is very worried about this, rightly so, has now gone into reverse. It's reached its limits, in other words. This process, which helped the capitalist system for quite a long time to survive and even to develop to some extent, has now reached, we can say quite clearly, it's reached its limits, and in fact it's going into reverse. Now, all kinds of things flow from that. It's a very frightening prospect that's, that's opened up. You see now, they're talking about it in the bourgeois press, the development of economic nationalism. Trade wars are developing. There is a de facto trade war between America and China. Even recently they've imposed, the Americans imposed New, new restrictions on the export, I think, of technology to China. Uh, this is dangerous stuff. This is the, because you can enter into a downward spiral. You see, pre previously you had an upward spiral, but the whole fabric of world trade is a very f fragile edifice, which is now threatened, seriously threatened by this development of, uh, of economic nationalism, of, uh, Make, uh, make America great again and all this stuff, a Brexit that comes into it and so on. These are retrograde tendencies which, which undoubtedly threaten very serious consequences for the future of, of, of capitalism. Now, it, it goes without saying it's elementary, you know, to go back to your initial question. Uh, in a capitalist market economy, in the last analysis, market forces must decide, and they do decide. The intervention of governments can distort and delay the market forces, but they can't. Uh, they can never be completely eliminated, and that is that. That statement is at the roots of the present crisis that we're that we're living living through. Incidentally, the truth of the fact is that the advanced capitalist countries have never recovered actually from the global financial crisis of 2007-2009. Yeah, I'd like to develop precisely that point, because I have to say, I, I wasn't present for the turning point in 1973, but I do remember the turning point that took place between 2007 and 2009. And of course, that was related to the global financial crisis, began with a subprime mortgage crisis in the States, but really reflected an organic crisis of capitalism. And now you've got institutions like the IMF warning about the prospect of global recession. Britain yeah. is already in recession. Mm -hmm. The Bank of England has clearly deliberately provoked a recession in order to bring inflation under control. So They hope. They hope. <laughs> That's the plan. A long, drawn-out yes. recession over yes. the course of a few years, they hope, will deflate the economy. So what I want to know is, in 2023... Are we looking at another global recession? And if so, in what way will it be different from 2008? That the world is definitely heading for a, a, a global recession in the course of this year. How deep that will be, I think it will be different perhaps in different countries. America perhaps a bit less severe. Europe very severe because of also the complications of, the, of Ukraine, which doubtless we'll deal with later on. These guys really don't don't really know what's going to happen, but 
But what they say is that at least one-third of the world's economy will be in recession in the course of this year. There's no two ways about that. The only question is, when will it occur? You can't be precise about that. And how deep it will be and how long it will last? You can't give a definite, a definite answer to those questions either, because different questions are different issues are involved. Nevertheless, you can be sure that they will. That the, in fact, in Britain, Britain is already in recession. They tried to wriggle around it and give different definitions, but yeah. uh, we're already in recession, as a matter of fact. Uh, in what way will it be different to 2008? Now, that's an interesting question. You see, very interesting. Now, the crisis of two. We'll say we'll call it the crisis of 2008. It took took place over over, over perhaps 18 months or so. It took the hopeless bourgeois. By the way, they are hopeless people. The so-called, the, the so-called economic experts, the mm. experts, they make me laugh. Are any of them of any worth in your view? Uh, some of them are a little, a little not so bad as other. Paul Krugman is perhaps one of the more intelligent. The ones least of, worst of the bad and, bunch. And uh, what's his name? Uh, Rubini, Rubini, isn't oh, it? Rubini, Doctor Doom. Yes, he's not not a popular man because <laughs> he's the only one of them that actually predicted the. The crisis of 2008. So they don't like him for that because he got it right and they got it wrong. But there we are. We leave them to their squabbles. All the bourgeois experts are hopeless, frankly. They are, let's be, let's be, let's be blunt, blunt. Well, actually, Paul, I mentioned Paul Krugman. I don't know if you remember that in 2008, some month, it might have been 2009, some months after the start of the, of the crisis, there was um, a conference of economists in the London School of Economics, to which all the most prestigious economists in the world were invited to this conference. And on the table, there was only one question, what the hell is happening? <laughs> because none of them predicted this uh, at all. On the contrary, as far as they were concerned, Marx was wrong, of course. Marx has been wrong, according to them, for the last 150 years. We'll have something a bit more to say about that later on also. Mm. But nevertheless... Uh, and of course, uh, they were they were confidently asserting that the capitalist economy was going to go on quite trundling along quite happily, forever and a day without any crisis. Right? Why? Because we learned the lessons of history. How how often have you heard that? You know, we've learned the lesson. It reminds me. You know, I don't know. Do, do you actually partake, uh, Joe? I kind of. You occasionally take a drink, being a Welshman like myself. I can't possibly confirm nor deny whether I've been known to take a drink on occasion. I see. Well, then we'll take that as a yes. I got two nice bottles of whiskey for Christmas, actually. <laughs> there we are. I'll share one with you. So there we are. Um, now then, if you've, been to a, if you've been to a party, you know, you see people drink quite a lot, especially over the Christmas period. And speaking for... I'm sure many of you will, will bear me out on this. Uh, people drink a lot, and they, they, they feel quite cheerful and merry because they drink and they drink and they drink some more. They feel even happier and so wonderful. Until the next morning. And you know what happens then? You know what they say next morning? Joe, you know, you're aware of what they say. Always say the same thing. Never again. <laughs> Never again. I've learned my lesson. Yes, they've learned their lesson, of course, till the next party comes. And then they forget all about it. Now, what I'm describing to you is not so much the festive season. What I'm describing is the history of capitalist economics for the last uh, 150 years. Yes, and as Hegel once said, my hero Hegel, he said that anyone that re really takes the trouble to study history can only come to one conclusion, and that is that nobody has ever learned anything from history. Mm. <laughs> and that's a fact. And that particularly goes for bourgeois e e economists. They learn nothing. They say they've learned. Yeah. yeah, they were supposed to have learned the lessons of the past, and therefore they were smart enough to avoid crises in the future. Well, they weren't. They weren't, and therefore the crisis of two thousand and eight took them all completely by surprise. And in this uh, con in this conference, by the way, Paul Krugman is an honest man, at least. Um, I believe he's a Keynesian, but there you are. he was honest enough to stand up and say the truth. He said, for the last three decades, it's a bit more than that, actually, but we'll give him that. We'll give him, we'll give him that. For the last 30 years, he said, macroeconomic theory has been, in the best case analysis, spectacularly useless mm. and, in the worst, positively harmful. Hear, hear. A truer word was never spoke. I don't think they... I don't know whether the others paid any attention to it, but the man was telling the truth. They don't have, didn't have a clue. These so-called economists, these so-called smart Alex, 
with all kinds of letters after the, their names. Yeah, these but these experts have never, never predicted either a slump or a boom. Do you know that? Mm. Never. And they certainly didn't predict 2000. On the contrary, it was all going to be hunky-dory, you know. They all, all sing the same song. And, of, of course, then they were panicked then. They, they were really panicked. The governments were panicked. They had to resort because they, they were really scared about the social and political consequences of this collapse. <laughs> it was a terrible collapse. And they were terrified, actually, of revolution. It's a fact. They, they really were. I, I read in, interviews at the time of bankers, American bankers saying that they were, they were afraid that they were going to be uh, sent to the guillotine by the end of the year. That they'd be hung up from a la as in the French Revolution. They, they drew the parallel, you know. They were really scared. Yeah, but, and therefore they took panic measures to save the system. That's all. They didn't think about it. It wasn't worked out as well. They resorted to the only measures which were open to them, which was to, to uh, raid, <laughs> raid the, the larder. <laughs> they spent vast amounts of public money to bail out the banks, to bail out the bankers who were responsible for the crisis, for, the crisis, for goodness sake. I mean, good heavens above. If you're a worker in a factory and you break an expensive tool, at the very least you'd be out of the door the very next day if you weren't sent to prison for, for willful damage. I don't know what. Mm -hmm. And here are these a handful of wealthy parasites, bankers, destroyed, in effect, the banks through the irresponsible, you mentioned the sub-mortgage, sub uh, subprime mortgage racket and other rackets of the sort. Completely obvious rackets. Mm. They through their through their gangsterism and their racketeering and their sheer irresponsibility, they wrecked the entire financial system of the world. Uh, were they sacked? I don't know of any, any a single one of these guys that was sacked, sent to jail. They they should have been sent to jail. Not one of them was sent to jail. Naturally, you know. On the contrary, if you're a big a big uh, multi a billionaire and so on, you go to the government and you get. Uh, Billions, uh, trillions of dollars were handed to by the state. By the way, here's here's an interesting phenomenon. You see, if you pick up any of the economic textbooks, the bourgeois textbooks, which the poor, unfortunate students in the universities are, are subject to that torture of reading these damned worthless texts, what do these textbooks all say? They were all, all in a complete agreement. The state must not interfere in the economy. Yeah, the free you remember market. that? Invisible hand of the market, precisely. In other words, that was the monetarist theory, which was the dominant theory. Nobody questioned this. Very few people questioned it anyway. Right. That uh, left to its own devices, in the last analysis, the, the uh, market will sort everything out. Therefore, when, they, when it collapsed in 2008, what did they say? Did they say, oh, leave it to the market, the market will decide, the market will sort everything out? You, you know, Keynes had a good reply to that. He said, yeah, in the long run, he said, we're all dead. That's <laughs> very, very true. But, uh, yeah, no, they didn't do that. On the contrary, the, the bankers went straight to the state. This state, I repeat, was not supposed to interfere in the market, wasn't supposed to have any role. That was the, 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 the Ark of the Covenant, as far as these people were concerned. They went running to the uh, government with their hands out, and the government's responded, yeah, you are guys, how much do you want? Uh, a billion, take a billion. Ten billion, take ten billion. Trillion, take a trillion. Yeah. It's, it's astonishing and it's monstrous, you know. But they did succeed in as much as they staved off an immediate collapse. That's true. They did. Yes, but, you see, yes, but. There is a simple law... Although it's very nice, you know, one of the most pleasurable things in life is to spend other people's money. I mean, that's not... Again, I couldn't possibly comment. You couldn't possibly comment, no, but, <laughs> but I will comment. Uh, yes, but the trouble is this. You, can't sp you cannot spend money which you don't possess. You can't. Mm. Uh, and this, th these, this uh, uh, conjuring trick, that's what, like pulling a rabbit out of a hat, it had unforeseen and disastrous consequences. This brings us to the dispute between the two main uh, schools of, of bourgeois economic thought, which you probably heard of, the monetarists and the Keynesians. Now, if you read the, the, the constant debates between these two uh, gangs, what you'll find if you study what, what, they, what they write, which is, is, is worth doing, I suppose, you'll find that, that, that they're both right, 
and they're both wrong. Let me clarify. The Keynesians make a, a devastating critique of the monetary, saying that this your theory would lead to a, a, a crisis, recession, mass unemployment, and so on. That's perfectly correct. Okay? But the Keynesian solution, which they adopted in 2008, although they swore that they wouldn't adopt it, of spending money which they didn't have, of spending public money, which the, where the public money is not, not really there, uh, that, the, the monetarists would argue that that's not viable because it's the deficit financing leads to inflation and therefore uh, to a new crisis. That's also correct. Mm. In other words, they, they're both right against each other and they're both wrong. Now, the idea of the Keynesians, which, by the way, all the reformists seem to like, except for our, our, our friend uh, Starmer, you know, Sir Keir, he's so right-wing now, I, I, he, he, he's not even a Keynesian, because he, he's just informed the, uh, the British people, those who are prepared to listen to him, that Wood <laughs> made fast asleep by his boring delivery. But he's going to solve all the problems of the British people, but he's not going to spend any money. Yeah, the government won't open its checkbook. The government the, will uh, not open its checkbook, precisely. In case, Listen, in case any of our international viewers aren't familiar with Sir Keir Starmer, Knight of the Realm, not the most exciting man. He's the current well, leader of the Labour Party. I should, I should have explained that. That's fact. all right. Yes. That's what I'm here for. Sir, that's quite <laughs> right. Thank you very much. Yeah, Sir Keir Starmer is the ultra-right-wing leader of the British Labour Party who... Uh, Kicked out uh, Corbyn. Uh, and me, Jeremy as it comes Corbyn. to it. Well, <laughs> and you. And, and many others. thousands of others. And many thousands of others, yeah. In, in fact, but we'll, we won't go into that. Let's go back to his economic theories, that he, he's going to solve all the problems without spending any money, with the public money. Well, how he's going to do that, you know, he must be a very clever man indeed. Now, you see, uh, the monetarist critique of the Keynesians is, is correct insofar as it goes. That if you spend money which you don't have, if you if you spend a lot of public money, if you introduce a lot of what Marx, Marxists would call fictitious capital into the uh, into the economy, you're asking for trouble in the form of inflation. That's inevitable. Mm. I mean, a half intelligent child of six would be able to understand that, but not the these clever bourgeois economists. No, 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 no. And what they didn't understand is that this state intervention, which saved the system, it is true, is itself the cause of new and insoluble problems. Because you haven't, you can't spend money you haven't got. As Liz Truss, our late unlamented conservative prime minister... I'd almost forgotten all about her. ...found out, yes, found out to her cost. You can't do that. Yes, but um, it, it, when you think about it, it's astonishing. These stupid bourgeois, you can't describe them, but these stupid bourgeois economists actually believe, they did believe, because, because inflation was not immediately obvious for certain reasons I won't go into. It wasn't immediately present, except perhaps in the housing market and the stock exchange. There you can see it. They were convinced that inflation was, was solved for good. There was no, in, look, 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 boys, there's no inflation. There's no inflation. And that this was going to be a permanent state of this. Why it should be a permanent state of it, I don't know. Do you? I haven't got the faintest idea. They never adduced the slightest proof as to why that should be the case. But they put it forward anyway as a solid theory. That we were, we were facing an epoch of, a, a new epoch of low inflation and low interest rates. And they encouraged governments businesses and consumers to borrow as if there was no tomorrow. Mm. Why not? Why not? There's plenty of uh, plenty of credit is available. It's cheap credit. There's no interest. And, so on. and therefore, what what occurred is that governments, I'll leave aside the consumers and the, the businesses, the same thing would apply, but the governments became dependent upon this uh, cheap credit and low, low, low interest rates like a junkie is dependent on a drug. Now, if you know about a little bit about drugs, I'm, I'm, I'm told I've got no personal experience of it. But if you if you if you take a drug, then you you, you have an immediate sense of uh, satisfaction, of pleasure, of uh, euphoria. Then you know, and it's wonderful. Everything's wonderful as long as you're on the drug. It's, like, it's okay. What happens, however, when you're taken off the drug, like a junkie is in a police station? The drug is withdrawn and he enters into a very painful process of 
I think it's called withdrawal. That's the situation you've got now, because the inflation, it, it was inevitably it, it, that it would, would reappear, and it did reappear. It has reappeared, and now it's out of control. And we should say as well, that's links to the taps being turned on during the COVID pandemic. Yes, indeed. Yeah, to keep the lights on. Um, yeah. the, the Keynesian, yeah. the, everyone became a Keynesian once again. I mean, it goes to show that when uh, the, the proverbial uh, excrement really hits the fan, the free market is pretty quickly jettisoned, even by conservative right-wing governments who yes. might have preached the virtues of monetarism in the past. Yes. They all start spending like there's no tomorrow. And yeah, that's right. They, they 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 started with this nonsense in, in this, this lunacy actually mm. in two thousand and eight because of the collapse of the uh, the bank the banks. They then con- continued it during the COVID. Again, they didn't have any alternative. They had no no other idea occurred to them. COVID was was threatening to bring the whole thing down, and therefore, and there was a demand for the for, for the for the public from the the people that they wanted uh, as a help to survive this. Right. Uh, horrendous business. They just uh, pumped in further, further vast amounts of money. And it was clear, again, the ruling class was explicitly afraid of revolution. A yes. Davos conference, it was admitted, the whole purpose behind this spending spree during COVID was because if they hadn't done that, you would have had rampant unemployment, you would have had businesses folding by the thousands, people turfed out of their homes. It would have provoked a social revolution. Yes, that's right. Of course, they've got someone to blame now. It's Putin. It's the Russians to blame, to blame for everything now, apparently. Yeah, we'll get to them in a moment. We, they, yes. The present situation also obliges them to, to run up further debts. The problem is this. You can run up debts up to a point. However, sooner or later, I don't think it's rocket science to say this, sooner or later, debts must be paid. Mm. And that's the position now. That's the, the, the withdrawal symptoms which I referred to. The inflation, by the way, the inflation now, which manifests itself in the so-called cost of living crisis, is uh, is causing chaos. It just disrupts trade, investments. It drives many small businesses into bankruptcy, even medium businesses. It it undermines spending power. It destroys pensions and savings. It pushes millions of people into poverty, and of course, uh, the conditions are intolerable. I mean, really intolerable, mm. really intolerable. I mean, not just in the what we call what we used to call the third world, the, the poor countries of Africa, Asia, Asia, and Latin America. That goes without saying. Where this is a life or death question. But even in a country like Britain, which is supposed to be a rich country, a wealthy country, millions of people now are faced with a dilemma because it's quite cold, not as cold as what it will be. The people in Britain, millions of people are having to decide whether to turn the heating on to keep warm, to escape from hypothermia, or to put food on the table to, to heat the food for their, for their children. Yes. Astonishing. Yeah, um, I mean, the press over the Christmas period was full of harrowing stories. I read one story about a poor woman from Wales who resorted to eating dog food because the monthly shopping bill became so exorbitant. Um, it was felt to be her only option. I mean, these are conditions that we don't expect in Britain in 2023. Yeah. Well, there you are. There you are. And there are many cases, every single day on the television in Britain, and I've no doubt it's exactly the same in other countries. Even even worse, I imagine in Germany it must be worse now, because the Germans are even, even more hit by this crisis, for reasons we'll explain in a moment. But you see, the, the 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 long and short of it is that uh, now the capitalist system is is in the worst of all worlds, because on the one hand they have uh, huge debts, which they had in two thousand and eight, that was really a crisis based on debt, but could, together with that they got inflation, which wasn't the case in two thousand and eight, and rising interest rates, which is the result of inflation, and therefore this is this is a, a really poisonous, dangerous combination. And it is preparing the ground for a worldwide recession, to come back to your initial question. Now, just to, to deal with the second half of your question, I would like to say more about the economy. I don't think it's, it's necessary at this stage. I think we've made the main points. You can always bring you on again. Well, hopefully, hopefully. But uh, for the time being, uh, just I'd just like to touch upon your second question. 
Is it possible that there'll be some kind of a return to normality? Well, this is an interesting question, because, of course, no recession lasts forever, that's true. Lenin made that point. Capitalist system moves through booms and slumps. Sooner or later, therefore, there will be some kind of a recovery. Yes, what kind of a recovery? That's a different question, and it's an important question. But will there be a return to normality? Now, this depends how you define normality. And the economist answered this some time ago, about 18 months ago, actually. And it said, yes, sooner or later there'll be a return to normality, but it will be a new normality. Mm. And what do they mean by that? Well, you see, people don't understand, people don't realize, people in the, in the West in particular, Britain and America and places like that, they think that uh, it's normal to have, for example, an old age pension. It's normal to have some kind of a health service, at least in Britain, not in the States, of course. It's normal to have all kinds of things like this, which people got used to this. You know, it's not really normal at all. From an historical point of view, from a broad historical point of view, it's not. I mean, the first man to introduce old age pensions, as, as they used to be, you know, was uh, the reactionary Bismarck in Germany, you know, the, the Iron Chancellor. And he introduced, if my memory serves me correctly, he introduced uh, pensions for men above the age of 70, I think. But the average life expectancy, I think, was about 60, 65 or something like that. I might have the precise years wrong, but uh, certainly people weren't expected to live long enough to draw that pension. Now, now people do expect these things. And that's the problem that the bourgeoisie face, because they must, they can't afford to make, when they say we can't afford this and we can't afford that, that's perfectly true. Okay? From a, from a bourgeois point of view, it's true. But therefore, they must cut. They must cut and cut and cut. They must destroy. Not only can they not afford, afford new reforms to improve the standards of life of, of, of the people and the culture and so on and so forth, and the health. No, no, no. They must destroy the, the the very reforms that have been conquered by the working class over the last 50 years. Now, if you think that that's going to be achieved without ferocious resistance on the part of the workers, you're very much mistaken. Now, draw your attention to the fact that at this moment in time, for the first time in a 100 years, by the way, the nurses in Britain are on strike. The Royal College of Nurses, which is not really a trade union at all, and many other sectors. In other words, the working class have become accustomed to a certain standard of living and certain reforms and certain benefits in countries like Britain, which they will not surrender without a fight. And therefore, what we're dealing here, what we're dealing with here, and that, that's the real perspective, all this is a finished recipe for the class struggle. And by the way, to all of this, you must add now, which I take it will be your next question, the war in Ukraine. Well, you're quite right, because, and we'll return to the question of the class struggle later on, but as you say, the war in Ukraine is used by the ruling class throughout the West as an explanation for the dire straits that millions of people find themselves in. Of course, the inflation crisis that we're experiencing began before the war, it was accelerated by the war. It is true to say, though, um, that cause becomes effect and effect becomes cause, and the Ukraine war is definitely a massively destabilizing factor in the world situation. I don't think that uh, it would be untrue to say that most people thought that this war might be over rather quickly. Uh, I think even we were of the opinion that this war would be over rather quickly, and before anybody uh, calls us out for for that um for that position, that was a view shared by the State Department, shared by Vladimir Putin, shared by the US government. But now we're coming up to a year since the invasion um, in February 2022. And it seems to me that there is no immediate end in sight. It looks like it's uh, a grinding conflict that isn't going anywhere very quickly. So Alan, obviously war remains the most complex of equations and we don't have any crystal balls, but where do you see this conflict going? What's the state of play at the moment and what do you think is coming next? 
Well, as you say, uh, that was what Napoleon said. That that war. He said, Napoleon said war is the most complex of all equations, and that is certainly true. It's difficult, therefore. It's a, it's a moving picture with many uh, unforeseeable variants in it, and therefore it's difficult to establish a firm uh, perspective, shall we say. But you can have a general idea of what is occurring, definitely. There's no trace about that. And the one variant which, uh, which, which, which is impossible, which you can rule out, I'll say that bluntly now, is the one that's been cons constantly advanced by, Western pro by the Western propaganda machine. By the way, I have never in my life seen uh, such a vast amount of, of lying propaganda uh, as in this war, in every in every war that there's some such thing. I mean, uh, uh, there's a very old saying which is true, that the first uh, victim of war is the truth. That's certainly the case here. But uh, nevertheless, the, the 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 argument which has been consistently hammered day and night uh, by the uh, the lie machine, the propaganda machine is that basically the following. Russia's been defeated. Russia cannot win. The Ukrainians are marching forward all the time. They're going to end up presumably marching on Moscow. Putin will be overthrown by the people, and, and, and so on and so forth. Now, this is uh, fairy tale stuff, which bears no comparison whatsoever to the realities of the situation in Ukraine. None whatever. I'll deal with the first question first. Yes, it's true. I'll I'd say myself, I was of the opinion that the war would be over very quickly because the Russians could take Kiev quite uh, quite quickly, I thought. I was wrong. I wasn't the only one, as you correctly see. The CIA had, and the Americans had exactly the same perspective. That's why they sent uh, a helicopter to pick up Zelensky and take him back to Washington, which he quite cleverly refused to uh, to accept. Now, it didn't work out like that. The question arises, why didn't it work out like that? Now, you see, I think obviously clearly uh, Putin made a mistake. The Russians made a mistake. What mistake did they make? I think it's looking looking back on it, it's fair. It's, of course, it's easy to be wise after the event. But it's quite clear that uh, uh, R Russia put forward a series of demands. And let's be clear about this. This war was provoked, I would say deliberately provoked, not by Russia, not even by Zelensky, but by the United States of America, by the, uh, by the CIA. And uh, that, uh, they did it for a reason. You see, since the collapse of the Soviet Union, the Americans really have got uh, big ideas that the, that the USA was going to be the sole unique power on the globe to impose its will everywhere on everybody, and nobody was entitled to stand in its way. Anyone that would stand in this way could end up like Iraq, for example, which uh, is a case in point. We won't, go, we won't go down that particular road, but that's interesting. Now, you see, they promised, actually they promised Gorbachev and even Yeltsin, they were promised repeatedly by the Americans and the British, the loud-mouthed, lying, cynical, hypocritical British. They were, they were promised that that NATO would not advance if if the Warsaw Pact was disbanded. That's the Russian. That was the Russian Soviet equivalent of NATO. NATO would not advance one inch to the east. They lied. They lied in their teeth, and since that time, NATO has consistently advanced thousands of miles, bringing it right up to the borders of, of what used to be the Soviet Union, recruiting former satellites of the Soviet Union like Poland and. Uh, and the, the Baltic states and so on and so forth. Now, if that isn't a threat to the security of Russia, I don't know what is. And the, eventually Russia responded. They responded. In, for example, when, they attempted, when the Americans attempted to get Georgia to join, what the hell has Georgia got to do with the North Atlantic Treaty Organization? I don't know. My geography is not that clever, but it's clever enough to know that Georgia is a long way from the North Atlantic. <clears throat> but nevertheless, they were going to get Georgia in. The Russians intervened militarily. They soon put a stop to that. The Americans then tried in, with the Ukraine. That, that led to one war already, which ended in 2014, if my memory, my memory serves me correctly. They, they engineered a coup in, uh, against the government in Kiev, and then they pushed 
anti-Russian legislation. At least half the population of the Ukraine speak Russian as a first language. They were going to ban the Russian language altogether, this kind of stuff. And th that led to a war at the time in which the, 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 the Donbass, part of the Donbass, anyway, separated from the Ukraine. Since that time, the Donbass was under continuous attack, vicious attacks, murder. You talk about genocide, that was genocide. The, the, the constant artillery barrage against civilian targets, not military targets, in the Donbass, in order to, 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 as a preparation for an invasion. There's every indication that the Ukrainians were going to invade. And therefore, the Russians decided to take defensive action. Yes, it was defensive action, believe it or not. But Putin came for, I'm firmly, firmly convinced, by the way, that it is said that Putin wanted to invade the Ukraine and seize. I don't believe that for one minute. Putin did not want to invade and seize and conquer the Ukraine. That would have been too much. What he did want is what he stated, that Ukraine should not join NATO, mm. that Ukraine uh, must be uh, neutral. I think that's a fairly reasonable. Like Finland what used to be neutral anyway. No, not anymore, it seems. Uh, that uh, they, they, they must disarm, they must not, not have this uh, this huge army that they got, run by fascist and neo-Nazi elements, by the way, like the Azov Brigade and so on. Oh, no, no, uh, they've cleaned up their image, apparently. No, 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 they, they, they might have cleaned up the image, that's nonsense. They're, I, they're, I hear that all of the Nazis from the Azov Battalion yeah, have yeah. been retired, and now no, it's no. just like any other that is, division that of the armed forces. That, if you believe that, uh, Joe, you believe any, any, any myth, any fairy tale. If anybody was under any doubt, that entire last passage was in scare quotes. Yeah. Anyway, anyway. Uh, and to denazify, de de to get rid of the, 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 there are, it's not known in the West because it's been silenced. There are very large, very active fascist and neo-Nazi organizations active in the Ukraine and so on. Okay, fair enough. I, Putin, I'm fairly convinced, he, he was of, thought, and I think it was a rational idea, that a show of strength would be sufficient to make the Ukrainians uh, agree to these terms and that the Americans would go along with it. He was wrong. He was, and by the way, he didn't have enough troops to seize the Ukraine at all. They weren't enough soldiers at all. They were, the, the, the disparity was too great. Therefore, when the conflict actually started, the Russians suffered defeat and had to retreat. That's true. But you know, I think the, the same uh, Napoleon actually said, defeated armies learn well. The Russians have learned. They changed their tactics radically. They started an operation in the uh, in the uh, Donbass area, which was fairly successful. It's slow, but it's been successful. It's slow, slow but thorough. And now, of course, I think uh, the, you could say we're going to this, the, the, the gloves are off since the since the last conflicts which the, in which the Americans. By the way, let's be clear about one thing: yeah. this is not a war between Russia and the Ukraine. It is not. If that was the case, Ukraine would have been defeated long ago. This is a war between Russia and NATO, between Russia and the United States of America. And without the assistance of the United States of America, Ukraine, Ukraine wouldn't, wouldn't last a single day. That's a fact. But therefore, on the basis of experience, the, the Russians have learned, they've changed. They've got a new guy in, 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 in command now. Uh, and they've got, uh, they've changed their tactics. And they've mobilized. Which they didn't, they didn't mobilize before. Now it takes time to mobilize. You say this there'll be not much moving, but there's some, there's been some movement. There's been some movement. But it is, it is, I think it's fairly clear to me that within a measurable space of time, could be one month, could be two, I don't know. It's impossible to say. But one thing is clear. Once the Russians have got 200,000 troops, uh, new troops, fresh troops, ready to fight, and they've got a sizable build-up in the east of the Ukraine, and also in Belarus. Keep your eye on Belarus. That's also preparing. The bombing, by the way, of the infrastructure, which they did not do previously, they didn't bomb the infrastructure at all. Now they have. What's the purpose of it? It's not this, you know, they got this nonsense, this propaganda stuff about poor people being bombed and so on. It's nothing to do with that. The purpose of bombing the infrastructure, particularly the electrical infrastructure, mm. is in order to paralyze the Ukraine's ability to, to fight. And it will, it will do so eventually. 
because the, the railways rely upon electricity. They run on electricity and so on and so forth. That, therefore, is a serious uh, problem for moving troops, equipment, and the rest of it. My best guess, I'll tell you what, my guess is that the Russians are preparing an almighty offensive, not necessarily to occupy territory, that's not the way, but certainly to block the border between... Uh, they might not even go for Kiev. Why bother? Because uh, there'll just be a lot of casualties, that's all, unnecessarily. The, f through Belarus, they can intervene and occupy the, the area along the border with Poland. In order to, in order why, in order to prevent the introduction of, of 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 foreign weapons of American weapons through Poland into the Ukraine, I think that's the idea, and the idea is to to, to overthrow the government and so on. I don't think the Russians have changed their position. Now, what are the chances of success? Well, the chances of the Ukrainians defeating a Russian for for once they got a Russian army of that size is vanishingly small. The Americans know this, by the way. Mm. In public, they deny it, of course. And Zelensky, by the way, strikes me as being a very, uh, I think he's a desperate man. I'm sure he's a desperate man. That's why he dashed to America in December to speak to the Congress, because he was afraid that the Republicans in Congress, a section of whom are opposed to this war in the Ukraine, and were opposed to him visiting the Congress even, they showed their disapproval. By uh, I think they didn't stand up to applaud him and all the rest of it. But the question is that uh, he wanted to ensure that the, the, the supply of arms and money would continue. Now, he seems to have been successful in that respect. Biden certainly is interested in continuing the war going to weaken Russia, yes. Yes, but not at any price. Not at any price. There's limits. One of the red lines, that's quite clear. Zelensky would, like, would love to push the West into war with Russia, which would be an absolute catastrophe for everybody concerned. But he doesn't care. He's quite irresponsible. He only cares about his own skin and his own interests. He's a, that's why they, 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 this, this, this provocation of the missile which landed in Pol Polish territory, I don't think that was an accident. I don't, be I don't buy this business. It was a mistake. I right, think they forgot which direction uh, the Russian missiles were yeah, being fired from, yeah, sure. accidentally fired it towards Poland. Sure, sure, sure. Originally, they denied it altogether. That's right. They said it was... Originally. They, they, they tried to claim it was Russia. The and they tried, the and they, for the very last, they clung to that until the Americans say, no, you're wrong. We have the, the, the information. We have the evidence. This was fired from a Ukrainian army position. Then they said it's an accident, which it clearly was not. No, they want to drag the West into war, but the Americans don't want that. The American policy is very clear. It was stated by one of their representatives not long ago, that we, we, we want the, the, the war to continue uh, the, the Ukrainians should fight Russia to the last Ukrainian. Get get a load of that. Mm. To the last Ukrainian. These guys who pretend to be so sympathetic to the people, they, they, they're the worst enemies of the Ukrainians, the American imperialists. And they, they don't care how many Ukrainians are killed. As long as American soldiers are not killed, that's a different kettle of fish. They don't want that. So therefore, now, have they succeeded well, I mean, they're going to continue to give money. They just said, was it 45 billion? I think so. That's more than what Biden was originally going to ask for. But they yeah. are. How many schools and hospitals that would have paid for? That kind of thing. But in any case, uh, the, the, pub, the public show is one of unity. But in private, the Americans are becoming very nervous about this, this whole business, about the whole war. And the question is, you know, uh, what's going to happen? You've got this, this latest uh, escapade where they launched some, a, rock, a rocket attack against a, a school where there, there were a number of Russian soldiers. I don't know how many were killed. The Russians claim about 80, I think. The Russians claim about 80. The Ukrainians claim about 80,000 or something like that. <laughs> Whatever. The usual nonsense. But in any case, even if, that, if, even if there were 100 people killed, it doesn't alter anything as far as the general uh, balance of forces. Because it doesn't change the slight, anything at all. And as on the other level, you see, what's interesting, America imposed sanctions on Russia. You know, there was a great, the great uh, strategist, German strategist Clausewitz, came came forward with a, a wonderful definition of war, which no doubt you know what it is. He said that war is only the continuation of politics by other means, by other methods. That's, that's perfectly true. But now the American imperialists have uh, just have modified that statement. Now, now they say trade is the continuation of war by other means. 
Let me specify that. Let me explain. In the past, a long, long time ago, you wouldn't remember, when Britannia ruled the waves, when Britain was still an empire, you know, world power. I'm sure you don't remember that either, Alan. Oh, I do. I, you're wrong. I do. The <laughs> tail end of it, perhaps. I, re I remember. I remember when I was a little kid at school on Empire Day. You ever heard of Empire Day? You haven't, have you? A little kid at school in the 1940s, that was, waving a little Union flag and uh, and and singing God, bre God bless the Prince of Wales and so on and so forth. Those were the days. Anyway, I wouldn't go into that. It's a long time ago. But anyway, when Britain ruled the world, if they got problems, they would send a gunboat to sort them out. Now the Americans uh, send, not a gunboat, they send a letter from the Board of Trade, you know, <laughs> any, any, any country that disagrees with America, finds itself at the mercy of sanctions. from, uh, And economic sanctions is a form of warfare, good heavens above. It's an attempt to strangle the economy of a particular country which they don't like. Now they're trying to strangle the Russian economy. Yeah, but we have to say that one year, practically one year later, the sanctions uh, imposed by the USA on Russia have been a spectacular failure. Mm. Now, I've got some figures here, quite interesting. The volume of trade with Russia at the start of the war, uh, at the beginning, was as follows. Britain went down, this is minus now, Britain went down 76%, Sweden the same amount, 76%, USA a bit less, minus 35%, Germany only minus 3%, that's a very small reduction. But then what about the others? Japan went up by 13%, South, South these are all plus now, South Korea up by 17%, Netherlands up by 32%, Spain up by 57%, China up by 64%, it's probably more than that, Belgium up by 81%, Brazil up by 106%, Turkey up by 198%, and India up by 310%. So, in other words, the sanctions are, are leaking water. Moreover, of course, the result of sanctions is to, is to have a damaging effect on world trade, to damage particularly the European economy. And, of course, it's increased, it's caused the price of oil and gas to soar to unheard of levels. This, of course, benefits oil and gas producing countries. In the first place, guess where? Russia. Russia. India and China have been buying uh, Russian crude, albeit at a discounted rate, as if there's no tomorrow. And therefore, the lost revenue, in, insofar as they've lost some revenue from, from, from the reduction of trade, has been co amply compensated for by the rising price of oil and uh, gas prices in world markets. So Vladimir Putin pockets the, the money, puts it in his pocket, and use it, uses it to finance his war machine with the proceeds, and continues the war as if nothing had happened. While the West is faced with the prospect of a freezing winter with soaring energy bills and rising, rising public anger. And by the way, the general feeling attitude towards the, the war is, is becoming more and more negative. And the states included, there's many mm. polls that, that illustrate that. And therefore, it's not... Uh, 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 let's put it this way. Look, the, 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 the balance of forces, the real balance of it, despite all the guff and the fluff and the propaganda and the stupid nonsense which they spew out. Oh, by the way, that's another thing. Did you know we lived in a democracy? That's what I'm told. That's what I'm told too, you know. And what's the difference between a democracy and a dictatorship? We've got a free press. For example, look at the poor Russians, the poor Russian people. They're only allowed to hear one point of view, you know, that? only one point of view. Nothing else. They never hear the opposite point of view. Unlike us in Britain, of course, we, we get what? Only one point of view. <laughs> every newspaper, every radio station, Every TV news program, one point of view is put, the one that's dictated by the government, by MI5, as a matter of fact, by military intelligence. I think it's also worth drawing out the hypocrisy because Absolutely. of all this talk about these billions of dollars invested into arms and material to support the fight for democracy in Ukraine. The Americans, for one thing, when running to the OPEC plus countries asking for cheap oil, 
to provide alternative supplies. Yes. I think the Saudis told them to get lost, but nevertheless, not exactly a very liberal and democratic regime. Yeah. And also, where is all this military support for, say, the Kurds, when Turkey, a NATO member, was brutalizing the Kurds? Yeah. The Americans obviously defend the Israelis to the hilt, irrespective of the misery they inflict on the Palestinians. Yeah. It seems like support for democracy from the West is extremely selective. Yes, that's absolutely true. Absolutely true. Uh, the hypocrisy is, uh, is completely nauseating, you know. But in any case, the real balance of forces on the ground is is, is completely unfavourable to the Ukrainians. Completely unfavourable. They, they're suffering, by the way, terrible loss. They make a big fuss about this, this uh, missile hit on that school the other day, but that's nothing compared to the the horrendous losses suffered by the Ukrainian forces in the last period, about which they say precisely nothing. They don't issue statements about the Ukrainian losses. Mm -hmm. And the difference is, of course, Ukraine, Russia is a far bigger country with a bigger population. It can take, mm -hmm. it can take losses, which the Ukrainians cannot take. Therefore, time, let's put it this, time is not on the side of the Ukraine. Not at all. And therefore, I'm just waiting to see. I, I think there will be an offensive, and that will ch ch change things quite uh, quite radically. Either way, it can take a longer time or a shorter time. It's impossible to say. It's a mug's game to try to predict that. Can't say, because there's too many uh, uh, unforeseen factors involved. Nevertheless, it can take longer, it can take shorter, but Ukraine cannot win this war. That's the general uh, conclusion. Of course, uh, we, we don't support either side, in particular because both sides are, are, are reactionary in, in, in a sense. But Putin certainly is a reactionary. We know this. And it feels like we almost stand alone in that correct position, that consistent internationalist position on the left. Yeah. All the other so-called lefts, the reformists in one country after another, plenty of so-called Marxists were throwing in behind one imperialist power or the other in the course of this conflict. Well, what is particularly disgusting and despicable is, well, you, of course, you expected of the right-wing Labour leaders, they, they always support the, the imperialists and, NATO, and NATO, and, that's, that's, and, and the Yanks, of course. But so-called lefts, I, this is absolutely disgusting. And the, 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 the bottom line is this. We don't support either side, no, but the, the bottom line is this. What Lenin said, look, my friends, the main enemy is at home. Always, you do not support your own imperialism directly or indirectly yeah. or in any way at all. And these guys actually have betrayed the cause of proletarian internationalism mm. by supporting. How the hell can any Marxist or socialist in their right mind support NATO and American imperialism, the most reactionary force mm. on the planet? Well, Alan, much as I'm sure the two of us would love to chat for hours, uh, I don't want to impose too much on our listeners' patience. So I'm going to bring this discussion to a close, hopefully on a bit of a positive note, because Marxists are, we're not pessimists, where sometimes it feels to me the only optimistic people in politics. The reason being, of course, is that we have faith in the working class, and we have faith in the working class's ability to overthrow capitalism, establish socialism and run society. So I'm going to ask you, all this doom and gloom we talked about, war, inflation, economic hardship, what gives you optimism about the coming year? What makes you optimistic about the future? Uh, there's a very simple answer to that, Joe. Uh, <laughs> I am optimistic and my optimism is based on the extreme pessimism and despair <laughs> that has gripped all the strategists of capital, who, by the way, they they can see they can see these guys can see the approaching disaster. The only thing is they got no clear idea how to avoid it. And in point of fact, uh, you'd be wasting your time to look to the bourgeois economists for some kind of explanation for all of this. But you see, everywhere, if you if you look at it, you you can see even in Britain. Where there's a, there is now a clear revival on the industrial front, a massive strike wave, unprecedented for the last, probably since the 70s is the last time I can remember. Yeah, how many sectors are we talking about? You've got uh, medics, yes. nurses, yeah. teachers, university lecturers, um, train operators, train drivers, more sectors potentially striking simultaneously, certainly, than I can remember. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
And therefore, this is, this is the beginnings. I wouldn't put it stronger than that. It's the beginnings. Uh, it, it, it is what Trotsky, what Trotsky once referred to in a, brut, in a, in a brilliant uh, phrase. He referred to the molecular process of socialist revolution. You know, mm. And it, what that means is that slowly, gradually, all these contradictions that build up, eventually they begin to affect the consciousness of the masses. That's the point. Right. Quantity becomes turned into quality. People say, look, we've had enough. Incidentally, I note that the big majority of the British population support the strikes. Despite all the attempts of the media to turn them against us, they failed miserably. And therefore, this, of course, uh, it gives us cause for optimism in the future. Yes, but you see, having said that, in the present situation, what I would say is that is that you can only get a rational insight into what is happening, can only be arrived at by the method of dialectical thinking, that's say the method of Marxism. And that's what gives us Marxist a colossal advantage. It sets us apart, in effect, from every other tendency in the in the labor movement. And people nowadays, in my experience, are looking for serious explanations. You know, they don't really need to know that they don't don't need to be told that they're poor. They know that they're poor. They, they're exploited. That their houses are cold and they can't afford to buy things and so on. Yeah, but they they need more than that. They need to be. They need to to know why this is happening, mm-hmm. how it is happening, and what is the alternative. And that can I would maintain can only be provided by the Marxists. And this is the enormous power of Marxists, the power of ideas, basically. This in and by the way. I can remember, since I was active in this movement, in this organization, actually, I can date it from 1960. I was a Marxist before then, but uh, but uh, nevertheless, uh, from, from 1960 I've been active. That's a long time. That's, what, over half a century? And in that period, uh, I've seen all kinds of things. I've seen good situations, bad situations, ups and downs and so on. But I tell you what, I have never seen in my life Never uh, a period in which there's been such an enormous interest and thirst for the ideas of Marxism as at the present time. And I'll prove it, I'll prove it just by opening, it's a pity we haven't got visuals on this program, but if you open the current edition of Der Spiegel, the famous uh, well-known German magazine, the entire front page of Der Spiegel is taken up by a portrait of guess who? Of Karl Marx. They tried to bring him up to date, I noticed, with a hipster haircut and tattoos and uh, a check shirt, but... Well, yeah. I, don't, I don't think Marx would, would necessarily object to that, you know, but the main thing is that he is there mm-hmm. on the front page of, of a magazine read by millions of people. And, of course, the same uh, cover carries the intriguing uh, question. Was Marx right after all? Now, that is the fact that such a question could be asked by a prominent uh, journal of the, of the bourgeoisie in a, in a country like Germany. That is uh, significant in and of itself, I think. Of course, naturally, they follow that up by saying, "Why?" Ca-, well, they say, "Why capitalism no longer works?" So they admit that capitalism mm, no longer that's works. That's a start. That's, that's a start, exactly. Why, why capitalism no longer works? And how it can be renewed. <laughs> Naturally, they've got to say, got to say that. But nevertheless, it, it, as a symptom, it is, it is important. And the content of this long article that accompanies it is, is quite interesting. It's not, not possible for me to deal with it any, in any detail, nor does it draw any correct conclusions, of course. But nevertheless, it is important that, 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 that they could ask these questions. And it draws attention to the fact, which is clear, that above all among young people, young people are questioning capitalism. That's what worries them most, more than anything else. And it, it actually says, I quote, For years, a palpable anger against capitalism has been spreading in the industrialized countries, including Germany. Yes, people are looking for communism. We know this. I know from my, from my own observation that there, I know that there are many, many groups in Britain, in Spain, in Germany, in America. I'm well aware of this. Small groups of young people who spontaneously, without any contact with anybody, have uh, started to study Marx and to uh, and call themselves communists. Not even Marxists, but communists op- openly. 
and say that they're, they're fighting for communism, in other words, for a fundamental change in society and for a new and better world, which is what, because we're all fighting for. And that's the real, that's the reason. When I see this, you see, Joe, I, that fills me with absolute confidence. Confidence in what? Well, confidence in the first place, in the marvellous ideas of Marxism. I would um, really recommend, I'd encourage all of the, our listeners, if you don't, if you, if you haven't done so, please go back to the works of Marx. Go back to the Communist Manifesto to look no further. If you haven't read it, I think you, you'll, you'll be in for a surprise. Because here's a work written in 1848, what, over, over 150 years ago, but it describes the world not of 1848, not at all. It describes the world today. Right. And that's in a, no, no other, I don't know of any other uh, document written at that time which you could say that for. So I got supreme confidence in the ideas of Marxism, supreme confidence also in our class, the working class, the only class that can really change society, as a matter of fact. And yes, supreme confidence in, in, in the organization which, which I support and represent, which is the international Marxist tendency, which is giving you this uh, marvelous program today and every day or every week. And with that uh, thought, I will wish you all a, a very happy, prosperous, healthy, and revolutionary New Year in 2023. Well, Alan, thank you very much. And I want to echo precisely that sentiment. Uh, I think this was a really tremendous start to the podcast. And Alan is absolutely right. It will be on every single week with a different speaker on a different subject. I think that... Um, this point about young people hungering for a genuine explanation and being drawn toward communist ideas, I think that's really the reason behind launching this podcast, to precisely provide that kind of analysis and those kinds of answers. So if you're inspired by what you've heard today, if you agree with what Alan was saying, if you agree with our analysis, then please do reach out via our website, marxist.com. And with that, I wish you a happy new year. And I'll see you next week. This has been IMR. Thank you very much. That was International Marxist Radio. Thanks for joining us. Tune in again same time next week for more Marxist news, theory, and analysis. And if you've been inspired by what you've heard today, get in touch via our website, marxist.com find out more about how you can join the international Marxist tendency and fight for revolution where you are.